Thanks for coming. Um, if you haven't filled out the sign out sign up sheet, um, please do so. It's circulating around the room here. Um, it's my my pleasure today to introduce uh, Daryl Stover, who's um, who's been attending most of our colloquia at least this semester, if not the previous ones. And I mean, he, he's always here. And so Todd and I. Uh, Todd, it was Todd's great idea to actually uh, give Daryl a space to talk to our group and hear what he has to say. And uh, wondering what he's been thinking about all of this genetic engineering and society stuff that we've been going over the last. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what, what your thoughts are on this. Um, Fred and I were exchanging some, some emails about what we could, uh, just some interesting observations about Daryl. So over the past weekend, this is from Fred, Daryl did the following engagements. Uh, Friday, he held a public conversation at the Durham Hotel with Derek Beasley, the artist in residence. On Saturday, he was at the NC Book Festival uh, for a conversation with Andre Perry, author of Some of Us Are Hungry. And Sunday, he performed with his son on drums at the Cary Library. And then I was doing a little Googling, and I found an old article from 2004 called Renaissance Man about Daryl. Uh, his hometown is Cary. And I also realized, after seeing Fred's uh, information in the Indy article, I, have a, I live in Durham, and I have you to thank for, for a lot of these wonderful cultural events that we have in Durham and, ar and around the Triangle. So, um, oh, so I'm okay. really happy you're a part of GES, and I wish <laughs> I, I'm discovering all of this fabulous stuff about you. So anyway, with that introduction, I'll, uh, I'll uh, let you go. Oh, y'all got me good. <laughs> so you can say, oh, that's another Daryl Stone. <laughs> yeah, and there are two more. <laughs> but anyway, I want to uh, thank uh, GES for inviting me to speak. Yes, I've been coming here for the past, uh, actually, couple of years. And actually, I make uh, the colloquium available to my intro to STS, Science, Tech, and Society students, um, an opportunity for extra credit. And most times, they engage the archive, although periodically, they'll pop in over the past couple of semesters, some have. But yes, I'm here to put in context science poetry, uh, which uh, for me is uh, an interesting notion, as you'll see by the tail end of this presentation, uh, because of the fact that um, actually I am a part of uh, the 2019-2020 Southeast cohort of science impactors, and that's an initiative uh, taking scientists and training us to engage uh, the general public relative to our various disciplines. And as you'll find out, my primary discipline in a previous life is microbiology, uh, specifically within the realm of virology. But as we look at science poetry as an opportunity for communicating science, um, I'm going to share a couple of primary examples of others. I'm going to certainly share some examples of my own uh, and, and point out that science poetry offers up this bridge between the general public and we scientists, uh, which could broach better modes of support and understanding. And then more importantly, with the last poem, uh, because this is called The Case of the Two Readers, I plan to point out poetically uh, that there is no difference between the creativity uh, between scientists and artists, humanists. And that example will be made quite clear 
via the lives and contributions of poet Rita Dove and microbiologist Rita Colwell. So some folks have already experienced my brand of science poetry. Uh, the symposium that was held last October in conjunction with the arts work uh, in the age of biotechnology, several of us were asked to respond to uh, any of a number of the installations in that wonderful exhibit, and I was selected to respond to Joel Ong's Terra Eventi, uh, which does engage this notion of uh, ice nucleation proteins from bacteria, and we'll be doing that again on March 5th, next week at 6 o'clock at the Gregg Museum. Of course, the exhibit is there till March 15th, so if you haven't seen it, you need to get over there. But if you haven't heard those responses by several of us, uh, including my response with uh, my science poem, Cloud Crobes, uh, to hear that, you will have to show up March 5th. I won't be sharing that today. So my first major example is looking at Marilyn Nelson. And Marilyn Nelson uh, was the poet laureate for the state of Connecticut. She is an emeritus professor of the University of Connecticut. But uh, more importantly, she published an award-winning collection of poems called Carver, A Life in Poems. And in that collection, she examines the life of George Washington Carver. Now, some people like to immediately leap to this notion, oh, yeah, that's the guy with the peanuts and made peanut butter. Well, no, that's not the case. The case is the fact that he has done so, so much as a botanist, as a chemist, as a sustainable, organic agriculturalist, uh, inventor, civil rights activist, and, yes, college professor at Tuskegee Institute in uh, Alabama. And that was at the turn of the next to the last century. So we're talking about late 19th century into the early 20th century. And for the most part, his examinations uh, and contributions are wide-ranging, both within the context of addressing plant diseases as well as within the context of uh, crop growth practices. But these two poems are shared with you now from Marilyn Nelson, from her collection, to give you some thoughts about this whole notion of what is meant by science poetry. So the first poem is Green Thumb Boy. And it's, 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 it's actually uh, referencing what was his colleague at the Iowa State College where he worked and got his higher degree. Uh, Dr. L.H. Pummel, who could be said to be uh, responding and speaking of him here. Hybridization, crossbreeding, evolution. He takes to new theories like a puppy takes to ice cream. We whisper that our green thumb boy is the black Mendel, that Darwin would have made good use of Carver's eyes. So clear his gift for observation, the best collector I've ever known. I think we have an entirely new species of pseudo-cercospora, and always in his threadbare lapel, a flower, even in January. 
I've never asked how. We had doubts about giving him a class to teach, but he's done a bang-up job with the greenhouse. His students see the light of genius through the dusky window of his skin. Just yesterday, that new boy, what's his name, from Arkansas, tried to raise a ruckus when Carver put his dinner tray down. He cleared his throat, stared, rattled his own tray, scraped his chair legs in a rush to move away. Carver ate on in silence. Then the boys at the table the new boy had moved to cleared their throats, rattled their trays, and scraped their chair legs as they got up and moved to Carver's table. Something about the man does that, raises the best in you. I've never asked what. I guess I'll put his name next to mine on that article I'm sending out. So as you see here, in these times of segregation, he being at Iowa State College, um, challenges of race within the realm of science abound. And the poet, Marilyn Nelson, captures that. But she captures something else, that lapel flower. And as we see in these three photos, in what I'm showing here, there is the flower referenced in the poem. Observation. Observation is important in science and in the writing of poetry. Another poem that she offers up relative to capturing these experiences, and, and in science poetry there are the references to science, or shall we say the stuff of science, what Everett Mendelssohn, the historian of biology, spent time at the Marine Biology Laboratory always speaks of. But this is another poem by Marilyn Nelson uh, addressing another aspect of George Washington Carver's life. A hand-lettered sign above the room number on the closed door, do not disturb, written in the air. The professor had had another vision of an experiment he should try, a question he should ask. The creator's small, still voice asked, what would happen if you made a resin of peanut oil and added a little bit of this nitric acid here. Some of that sulfuric acid there. Some alcohol, some camphor. A little of this, a little of that. Would the molecules form clusters tightly bounded into one plastic which could then be shaped and molded? A thin white silence issued from the door seams settled on all who knew the door was closed again, made them walk softly, modulate their laughter, take themselves seriously. The creator asked, what about elasticity? Is Ficus elastica the only plant on earth whose sap is latex? What about Asclepius syriaca? What about Ipomia batatas? coagulated and stabilized, vulcanized, and compounded with an inert filler. Would their sap become a half solid, half liquid, which deforms under applied stress, yet after stretching recovers completely? The professor took his Eurekas on grueling medicine show lecture tours. He spoke softly, holding up 
his peanut axle grease, his peanut diesel fuel, his peanut gasoline, his peanut insecticide, his nitroglycerin, his plastics, his rubber, his sleeping compound, his iron tonic, his goiter treatment, his faith, his science, his miracles. So again, we see here, he engaged in a practice much akin to early development of all sorts of products through understanding the chemistry and the mixture of things. His contributions, as I said, were quite wide. He, just like a host of other extension services, operated um, in ways and means that benefited farmers far and near. Certainly the experimental station aspects of uh, our own North Carolina State University made a difference in regards to agriculture in our state. But certainly for him, his uh, productivity went way beyond just the bounds of Alabama. I mean, I personally have the experience of a great-grandfather who had a farm in southern Illinois. And the family wasn't too happy upon his passage when he turned over all the farmland to Tuskegee Institute. Why? Because of his successes as a farmer were a direct result of these sorts of bulletins and the information and support coming all the way from Alabama uh, for extension service workers affiliated with Tuskegee Institute contributing to his farming corn ad infinitum. But if we look down this list here, we eventually see number four, some Sarcospore of Macon County, Alabama. Sarcospore, eh? Well, yes. Plant diseases are a big thing here at the GES Center, right? I know that that's especially important to uh, how we are engaged in trying to advance our control and impact on plant diseases in this state. But this poem here, Sarcospora, reflects on that experience uh, in 1895 at Iowa State College. He smooths a square of butcher paper, licks his pencil stub, looks up, and loses himself in the cool of deep woods. Mossy water song over stones. This species, with conidial scars on the conidinous cells, puffballs, cavatia gigante, Curd white melons among the leaves, boletus edulous scattered like gumdrops under the trees, sliced and sauteed in some sweet butter with a little bit of chopped onion. The door bangs open, white hands, a blindfold. But he knows that laugh and that, but they are white men's voices, white man laughter. But they are his classmates, his friends, but they are white men, white, pushed and dragged down the street into a doorway, hearing the door close behind him, in whom does he place his trust? Standing alone in a hush of whispers, rustling paper, in whom can he trust? He does, 
eyes unbound, see, then do not see the new suit, shirt, hat, and tie thrust into his trembling hands. Marilyn Nelson gives us all of those <laughs> species listings within the poems. Again, we get the words of science. We get immersed in the things of science through her poetry and in ways that um, are also uh, parallel to the life experiences of George Washington Carver. She gives us a broader picture of this, this gentleman of science uh, who many would want to attribute singularly uh, his attachment to peanuts and sweet potatoes. But we get a larger understanding of both science and George Washington Carver through her work. So we jump from this whole referencing of, in, in, in fact, being immersed in uh, plant diseases to the understanding that plant viruses, and more importantly, the tobacco mosaic virus, is the first one uh, that's identified, actually the first virus. And we see on the right uh, that virus infecting orchids. Uh, the, that actual image is from our very own North Carolina State University Plant Pathology Archive. I bring up viruses because, yes, that's where I come from. And what we see here on the left is a fairly new pub published uh, announcement about being able to visualize an influenza virus breaking its way into the cell. And on the right, we see two distinguishing images between the rhinovirus and influenza virus, keeping in mind that a cold is not a flu and flu is not cold. As the opportunities for visualizing viruses moved on, certainly viruses started to create grander challenges to us. First and foremost, the HIV virus, as we see pictured here from a CDC public health image library. And then on the right, uh, actually just recently released, uh, the uh, what is now called the COVID-19 virus, causing all the ruckus and the grand epidemic, coronavirus uh, as it is generally known. The virus actually here is seen as uh, those circles on the outside of the cell with little dots. And those little dots are the actual viral genome. So yeah, there are viruses. And I would hope none of you have ever come to have encountered computer viruses. This is one uh, which actually came out in 1990. And, um, and there were several variants of it. But maybe each and every last one of us have had our experiences with computer viruses. But the viruses I'm more familiar with, going back to my days at NIH and the National Cancer Institute, working with these two good friends of mine, John Dahlberg and Stephen Tronick, uh, resulted in and primarily focused around retroviruses when it was thought that most human cancers were caused by viruses. Of course, we moved beyond that uh, into understanding that there's a genetic connection more so than anything. But these would be the images that I would have seen 
or maybe even contributed to uh, in my role working as a research assistant uh, in those settings in the late 70s into the early 80s. And so I now share with you the first of a few science poems of my own. This one's entitled, Unleashed. I have seen viruses, a mashup sea of protonaceous pixels, binary videos, and pre-tube Gangnam-style dancing, feverish nucleic acid-centered bubbles. Circled in squares sometimes, bite blebs on blobs, rods and polygons, lunar landing module looking phages fed on living and dead information, parasitizing silicon and gene code, poured out of dark green isolation, circulating mass infection. I have seen viruses, strange epidemiologies, painted a diseased imagery across a blue screen, lifeless landscape, Cityscapes, medieval again, unhalted alchemist horrors, plagues, comet heralded. Get electrons sparked as shivering screens scream their outlines and designs of disruption. Resistance to vaccine patches offered up as world net flu. Antivirals yelped their readiness. Bird who? Duck, duck, goose, chicken? Foul ball small, antigen drift and drizzle, hurt big. But I have seen viruses silence all expectation and amassed army out of an exponential nation, instill computer calculation futility, breed creation upon creation, evolutionary overcomers of blood defense against animation, Virtual and actual. Respiring oxygen eaters beat to blank, extinct. I have seen viruses, as well as nausea, nausea, cobra snakes, and giraffe cells, cells of many a mammal. Mimi monsters and larger gyrations, thin sliced to their millionth iteration. Arc electronic observation display scopes scanning the edges, countless borders between frozen inner zones, between nano-creatures of undead death-dealing, activated intracellular multiplication, explode. I have seen viruses. Oh, the chaos they bring to brains and behavior. Foaming mouth wild dogs, raccoon-eyed zombies, mind-wiped laptops, erased systems, no defense memory. What memory? Immunity wishes denied. I have not seen a virus do much good, but I have seen them. I have seen viruses, 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 viruses. Ooh. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so when I left working at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, I left to go work for a private company as a science editor that established a whole host of databases. And I worked with those databases dealing with 
microbiology, genetics, biochemistry. But then I also convinced the company that biotechnology was happening. This would be in the 80s. And that there should be very specific databases relative to that sort of research, including more specifically the Marine Biotechnology Abstracts Journal. And so in creating that, I reached out to my former professor in pathogenic microbiology at the University of Maryland, uh, Dr. Rita Colwell, to say, hey, we need an editorial advisor for this database that is also printed in hard copy. The other thing that should be noted is I came here in the early 90s to sell that database and the hard copy journals uh, to this campus. I guess that was like 1993. I was here for a biotech conference but also made the trip here into Raleigh. And those databases still exist. The hard copies are divided between some of them are in Hunt Library, depending on uh, the topic. That would be the Marine Biotech uh, Abstracts Journals. And then the others are in D.H. Hill. You might want to check them out. And if you look in there, you'll see a list of editors, and you'll, you'll see my name there. But the other thing I engaged in was the advocacy for the formulation of several uh, foci of biotechnology along the Baltimore-Washington corridor. And certainly one of those advocacies was relative to the development of biotech institutes affiliated with the University of Maryland. And one very specific one, one addressing marine biotechnology, which does still sit there in Inner Harbor, but it's Important to note, you see where that reflection is along the shoreline? There used to sit right there a wonderful mom and pop seafood restaurant because my wife is from Baltimore. So I used to go to that little mom and pop seafood restaurant with her and her parents way before we got married. And of course, it wasn't until I went to the grand opening of that structure that you see there that it dawned on me. All of that advocacy for marine biotech and that wonderful center resulted in that little mom and pop seafood store being gone. And I was like, oh no, look what you done done, Daryl. I mean, now I, I wasn't the major. I didn't put the money up or anything or pick the site. So, But marine biotech was one of those things I was a big advocate for. And yes, that still exists to this very day but it has gone through several iterations and now exists as the Department of Marine Biotech affiliated with the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And some of the aspects of what goes on there are certainly a whole blue crab hatchery research and algal production. Uh, yeah, I love hot steamed crabs. You know, that's the Washingtonian native Marylander in me. Uh, so yeah, we need to resolve any other issues so that we can keep having wonderful crabs coming from the bay as well as our shores and our estuaries. But while working as that editor there, uh, which the company was situated in Bethesda, Maryland, just like NIH, I took a special interest in looking at the unfolding saga and research uh, done by Joanne Burkholder. And in attending a conference in Baltimore, can't recall if it was an American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, 
Conference or the Inter International Marine Biotechnology uh, Association Conference. But it was there that I met uh, Dr. Burkholder and expressed quite a bit of interest and shared quite a bit of insight in the research that she had been doing. And she said, oh, this is great. You know, I had a news service send you reprints of my papers and this actual, these two images are actually the images that were sent to me by the North Carolina State University News Service back in the uh, early 90s when I just met her. But as a result of seeing it, I said, you know what? I'm going to write another poem. And the poem I decided to write is called Mad Baby because of looking at this image, this looks like a fathead kid with their tongue sticking out, big ears, and sunglasses. And so I, yeah, called it Mad Baby. Now, for this poem, I'm going to need you to participate. So every time I say Mad Baby, you say Mad Baby. Got that? Y'all ready? Mad Baby. Oh, we're going to have to go on the road. <laughs> Huffing and puffing, poking out your tongue. Don't want to go to bed, just have some fun, mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Too much of one, not enough of the other. Yeah, too much sugar and not enough loving, mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Fast mass, material wants, McDonald's feeding the brain, TV games, computers, Driving kids insane. Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Another mad baby new story to tell. Another mad baby from a watery hell. Down in Carolina along its river shores. A new thing breeding and it's coming to yours. Physteria piscicida is its name. Ambush predator its claim to fame. Fish swim over mad baby bubbles out. Many fish will die. Ain't no doubt. Mad baby feeds on dead fish flesh. More mad baby seeds ever stronger it gets. 24 forms a new alien beast. Toxic forms, microscopic like yeast. Neurotoxin, dinoflagellate, suffocates fish and makes you forget. Plant scientist to the rescue. She discovered mad baby, all credit is due. Scientists studied this bottom brew. Mad baby was waiting and it got them too. Punches in and sucks insides of cells like a mad vampire, then it swirls and swells. Strangely disappears after damage is done. Had its dinner, had its fun. In microscopes, research goes on, piecing together truth and what must be done. Give the kids a clean planet, show them both some love. How would you rather have it? Ain't you had enough, mad baby? Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. Mad baby. <laughs> so yeah, Dr. Burkholder has gone on to do a host of other wild and wonderful research relative to harmful algae. Uh, certainly that poem has taken on a life of its own. It was utilized in a science and art uh, summer camp in Durham, North Carolina, where actually the gentleman that you see in the center there, Tony Small, uh, is able to translate science into musical theater. Of course, he's now in Washington, D.C., writing operas for uh, all sorts of embassies and the like. But while there working with the summer camp, uh, he took the kids into the music studio, wrote a wonderful composition to center around 
this particular poem, especially after I shared the poem with them. And we had Howard Glasgow, who had worked uh, in conjunction with Dr. Burkholder, uh, gave a presentation to the kids about this. The poem was also utilized to kick off the March for Science here in Raleigh in 2017. Now, when that was about to occur, my interest was to go to Washington, D.C., because that's where I grew up. That's where I was first introduced and engaged in science, even as a little kid, getting microscopes and the like, but uh, and studying at the University of Maryland College Park and then working at NIH and the like. But there were several folks here who said, no, Daryl, we want you here at the March in Raleigh, and we want you to kick it off with Mad Baby. So <laughs> we got everybody pumped up with Mad Baby, uh, as we also gave a shout out to all the different science disciplines represented in the crowds of folks that came to participate that year. In fact, as I said, uh, this publication just recently came out last year, I believe it was, um, which is a compendium desk reference on harmful algal blooms co-edited by uh, Joanne Burkholder. So yeah, that sort of work and science still continues on, and it, was, it is my intent using that poem to get young people interested in environmental science. Which brings us now to the, to the final chapter in all of this, and that final chapter centers around the two readers, as I introduce them to you, uh, poet Rita Dove and certainly microbiologist Rita Colwell. And both of them have this long resume of uh, very important contributions, uh, with Rita Dove having been the poet laureate for the United States, as well as the poet laureate for the Commonwealth of Virginia, receiving the Pulitzer Prize for a collection of poetry, uh, Thomas and Beulah. But Rita Cowell also has her accolades and accomplishments as well. And neither of these two lists are complete. They're just reflecting especially what was true at the time that I started to look at the two readers and come to the conclusion that, wow, this poet and this microbiologist are doing these great things all at the same time. What is the universe saying? What does this say about uh, the two worlds of C.P. Snow? Arts, science. Well, this poem examines that. So let me move us through that with the two readers, for Rita Cowell and Rita Dove. And there are, of course, three epigraphs. The first one being from C.P. Snow, from his The Two Cultures, and a second look. Between these two groups, the scientists and the literary intellectuals, there is little communication. And instead of fellow feeling, something like hostility. Hmm. I think that's still the case. Aldous Huxley said in Literature and Science, the remotest discoveries of the chemist, the botanist, or mineralogist will be as proper objects of the poet's art as any upon which it can be employed. John Brockman, in his book, The Third Culture, points out, the third culture consists of those scientists and other thinkers in the empirical world who, through their work and expository writing, are taking the place of the traditional intellectual in rendering visible 
the deeper meanings of our lives, redefining who and what we are. And then lastly, since I'm a cultural historian also of music, but then was sired and empowered by George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, this is from uh, Better by the Pound. Let's take it to the stage. There's a tidal wave of mysticism surging through our great generations. Poem is in three parts. This is the first part. Cowell. All too much is never enough for you. The microscope must have did it. Must have reduced everything to that drop on a slide teeming with tiny life. That is never enough, never the end, never the final act of discovery or creation. El Nino brought Vibrio from Asia to South America. Cholera ravages children, and you answer the matter with quicker methods of ID. The maximum isness of the teeny tiny abounds around us in very special spaces hot sea bottoms or inside the insides of ever smaller creatures, ever hidden truths, the many uncounted remain your goal. You slow down? No, the world and its science would stop. Zoom, and we see the potential in microbes, tiny factories at work for us and the inner workings of those against us. Biotech Bay is in California, but you say, how about a biotech Baltimore? The future health of city and youth floats in a harbor of discovery. More than just fish party in the waters, you say. It's high time we listen to all the music. Rod-shaped, viral, green and marine, speckles shimmer. Their light reveals your direction. At home, anywhere in the global community, a planetary citizen on a mission to connect all research spots where those who capture question marks hold them close to their hearts until truth goes gushing. You sow seeds of shared creativity. There is no place left on the planet where you have not jogged minds. How about going back for seconds or thirds? Dollars squeezed for science blossom into new knowledge and networks never dreamed. The scientist as individual is a notion that disappeared along with the smallpox virus. Students camped out in labs learn how to love biochemical pursuits like the captured essences at the end of a final fermentation. Watson and Crick and Franklin's wishes become their code of conduct as the genetics of life reveals deeper instructions and interrelationships. Hell, computers and genes have even become lovers as you quickly, assuredly, place brick after brick on your ever-growing nature study emporiums. We will come. We will come to know better the world you reveal and want to know more. Two, Dove. Research provides more than enough, more than enough words for the poet. 
A sift does not help the honest to goodness, baked up buttery fluffiness come about. It's the selection of the right amounts of intricate details in the right order, coaxed and cooked to hot and tasty delight. Biscuits and poems take time. The little peaks in the oven are essential to the experiment. The eye contact necessary to ensure the proper chemistry. Parsley flakes garnish a horrible history. Trujillo, the Dominican Republic's Idi Amin, kills for ours and his mother. Your time machine pen stops often in America's slavery. Cholera, David Walker and Solomon Northrop's abduction stops often in Europe's urban landscapes. Paris, Munich, Sicily, and Versailles stops often in travel to allow us to savor the adventure on an intimate basis and see the faces, see time engaged in observation, fact collation and analysis, prose scripts etch portraits, a laboratory on paper, no brush or photo could dare trace. Genetic sequence of self generated in poems on home, especially your father's roses, each pastel petal received this blessing. The family tree yields granny tales steeped in the blues, mandolin strings and migration. Why not settle in Ohio? Two O's for opportunity after the turn of the century and the spin of a riverboat wheel. Leave the breadbasket of mid-America for deep barrels of kraut, tall steins of brew, and literature study. You were prepared in German. Daddy spoke it since the service. Language is not just grammar and punctuation. It's for love and war. What every writer knows, Virginia is a lot like language. Let go some of its past and crabs, and it's more for young couples and families. You and yours settle into this state, living, writing, and loving. Two years to promote poetry is never enough. Two challenges to women are daughters and mothers. Too often there than here, seen at the Library of Congress and then gone to the White House, seen in diversely painted nails and then gone to paint them again, seen on Sesame Street and then gone to put the cap back in capital, stop and pens run dry, pencils break, libraries close, and the muse takes off forever. Three, synthesis, Rita, me, Rita, hyperactive brains attached to creative fingers, cosmic order and righteousness evolve in you. The Veda, sacred lore, holds the truth to be there for the taking by those doubly gifted, artists, scientists, deadless, capturing the minotaur of ignorance, 
conjure freedom for minds to soar, unplagued by unanswered riddles. Inventors pass on words and wisdom wondrously, ripe in ritual. The halls feel to hear your pronouncements, published simultaneously on the internet. Quietly built facts stacked like pancakes covered in maple. Appease the appetite of souls desirous of the never known. Sweet are the winds to him who desires moral order. But what about her? Creation misblaming women, uncorrected, leaves us dumb forever. Reveal the simplicities of life and feeling, mothers of nature and rhyme. Missioner's epic Chesapeake gathers dust and dead sea, but microbe by microbe, clam, oyster, crab, the guild and goose to green tree shall be understood and set free. Maryland and Virginia, mated by sages, share passions. Land, water, and history are the beginnings for poetry and science, allies in earth crisis. Natural mystics, microbiopoetic matriarchs, banished to unattainable deepness, the disdain, disdain that dissuades, disrupts, and destroys. Birth the love of word and wisdom. Raise up wild Einsteinian emotions, awash in compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole world of nature in its beauty. If you will, as you have, dutiful and trendsetting, hands-on and open-minded, teach and touch us in heart and mind, you will carry our enlightened souls to the end of an ecstatic voyage, making us one. The two readers, again, offer up two worlds, but two worlds that show that creativity, observation, description are operative in both and thus link us in that ever wonderful endeavor of knowledge production, both in literature and in science. Because it is Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras time, I have a little lanyap, just a little extra something something as they say, to add to this. So I do write a host of poems that are inspired by the covers of American Scientist magazine. So this particular issue, which came out in 2013, is addressing sexual evolution, and it's looking at a wide variety of organisms. But one of those organisms is jumping spiders. So what I want to do is close out with this, and what it will require me to do is jump here, and I'm going to do this poem while accompanying this wonderful dance with some very wonderful music. So, let's party. Fancy pants for spiders that boogie.
nature disco dazzle, flashy peacocks prance, rainbow butt spiders, got their own dance, got the crazy eyes too, look at me baby, waves a leg or two, up down mood music in the jeans, rumba sperm cha-cha calculate, successful egg wobble makes you a mate, not eight. Painted rears flash pastels. Another good selection. Says, get here. Get with this move. Best one going, honey. And I seen you look. Up the oak of species. Life goes to the quickest. Hideous romancers. Deep changes in thought. Quick shift attractions. And as catchers in the eye. Shimmy together. That's when why. Jumping, web babies grow. Get to put on the latest tail feather. Shake a leg show. to close those are my references I've been driving with a license plate that reads side poet since 1996 are there any questions <laughs> yes um, thank you for that presentation strangely enough that's the second time Peacock Spiders across my desk this week. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with True Facts, there's a web series that like does some funny biology stuff. Look it up. Um, but again, thank you. I really appreciated that sort of disruption of the two worlds problem or bringing those conversations together. Uh, my question kind of stems from this either real or imagined um, idea that both the sciences and poetry are kind of not perfect for everyone to do. Um, they're kind of either elite or hard for people to necessarily do if they have to do it correctly, I guess. Um, but it seems to me that there's something emergent about the work that you do that's starting to disrupt that elite idea a little bit. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to, the, to, to, A, whether or not that's explicit in your work, and B, how you think about the emergence and the merging of both the science and the poetry as a way to bring, bring these ideas to broader audiences and especially I noticed um, the way you highlight stories that have often been excluded or perhaps enrolling more or addressing the diversity problems. There's just a lot going on that I see that's happening in the emergence that isn't necessarily happening in either of those disciplines or traditions independently um, and what your experience there has been. So within my <clears throat> introduction to science, tech, and society, of course, we engage the notion of marginalization. And so we know that the, the long history of our American society, if we want to just restrict it to that, has had this problem. And I do emphasize has 
had this problem for a mighty long time and still has it. So yeah, disrupting that marginalization is our challenge. How do we, how do we disrupt uh, marginalization along race, gender, class even? And certainly uh, generating modes of communication that allow for a sort of shared experience opens up the door. As you noticed, um, that poem, Mad Baby, as I said, took on a life of its own. And it got this other life through a science and art camp that was directed specifically at African-American children in the city of Durham. And so I think uh, in a grander scheme of things, I think broadening those sorts of initiatives need to manifest. They need to manifest in ways that are embraced by all of us scientists, by the larger world within the context of what happens on campuses, what happens in communities and schools, what happens in recreation centers, what happens in popular culture via all sorts of media forms such as television, cable, social media. Uh, that disruption needs to get a little bit more explosive is what I would say. And yes, that's, that's, that's part and parcel of what I see you know, my role as, and this is one part of that. Any other questions? Yes. Um, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. I just, this is one of the most enjoyable things I've ever attended. It reminded me, I watched a new show on Netflix with my daughters this weekend called The Expanding Universe of Ashley Garcia. Mm -hmm. It's about this 15-year-old girl who gets a PhD um, in astrophysics. But she has a friend, and when they had written a song uh, that explained her friend's PhD thesis, and they performed mm -hmm. it. And it was just this really fantastic... There was another character in the show who doesn't get science. He's a sports guy. But he understood the science because of the song mm -hmm. that they sang. And mm -hmm. it just... The way that... Um, you were talking, your poems also kind of had that same effect. Mm -hmm. uh, there were things that you might not understand, but through poetry or through art, like an art twerk, it, um, it does make the science more understandable to folks that think about things in a, in a different way than scientists do. So yeah. I just saw a nice parallel there. And it's a cute show, too. Yeah, it's about making it easier for people to attach themselves to it. Uh, that, that summer camp, yeah. There was science being taught, there was art being done, but it was leading up to a musical that was being performed, and the musical's real premise was um, all of these kids are at a science camp, and they love science. Every time the word science is said, they'd say, yes. And then one day, this kid shows up who uh, didn't get it. So the rest of the musical is showing him that science is all around. And it turns out that kid that attended that camp that was playing that one role that didn't get it, he eventually went on to get a degree in bioengineering at North Carolina A&T. So it works. It works. What I want to do, I mean, if there's one more question, we can do that. But we do have one more poet in the house who I want to get to. Is there a question? No? Okay. Well, then. Because Fred shared with me the other day about he and Todd and what they teach and all, and shared this poem with me. And I'm like, man, we need to, yeah, 
We need to hear. We need to feel. We need to see. We need to be made uh, uh, aware even more emphatically about, again, the significance of the two worlds and how they come together. So you want to come up and share that with us? Or you want to share it from there? Before you go, let me just say that uh, Todd and I uh, did an Ollie class, adult continuing education, and Joe was in that class. We had two sessions, and one, we went to the museum to look at the exhibition, but then we gave them homework. <laughs> they were supposed to come up with something. Uh, they had, we gave each of them the catalog, and they were supposed to read it and decide what they were going to do. And uh, Todd said, and you could also write a poem. And so uh, Joe wrote a poem about the uh, four-leaf clover making our own luck. So you can read it. Well, okay. you. Anyway, right, go. thank you. I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't think it would ever come to this. <laughs> <laughs> it was just homework, right? Uh, you know, and compared to what we've just looked at, you know, I feel a little puny. But um, anyway, oh. here goes. Um, is three the new four? Inspired by We Make Our Own Luck Here by C.R. Redman. The year 2020. Make four, make, excuse me, make more of four, and you shall see the luck you desire will grow around thee. The year 2060. Four leaves and four leaves is now evermore, but luck so desired groweth not more. The year 2090. O Trinity, O Three, wherefore art thee? Wherefore art thee? Can a three leaf be found among the four that abound? Will three now bring the luck so desired? It's luck's tale to tell if three's to be found. <laughs> Thank you. And as I said in response to Fred, we better make sure we're preserving the genome of the three-leaf clover or we're going to end up <laughs> like that and we're going to be out of luck. But again, I want to thank you. This has been just as much a pleasure for me as I'm sure, at least as I can tell, it's been for you. And uh, you should take it to task to maybe write your own science poems as well. Let me leave you with that. Again, thank you.